The reading is Acts chapter 18, verses 1 to 22, and can be found on page 1114 in the Red Bibles. We have Bibles in other languages and versions available at the back. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshipper of God. Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. While Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews of Corinth made a united attack on Paul and brought him to the place of judgment. This man, they charged, is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to them, If you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names and your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. So he drove them off. Then the crowd there turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue leader, and beat him in front of the proconsul and Gallio showed no concern whatever. Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Then he left the brothers and sisters and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at Sencrii because of a vow he had taken. They arrived at Ephesus, where, where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to spend more time with them, he declined. But as he left, he promised, I will come back if it is God's will. Then he set sail from Ephesus. When he landed at Caesarea, he went up to Jerusalem and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We'll take a look at that passage together for the next few minutes. Um, I don't know if you have come across the, 
the phrase um, you might have done, you might not have done, um, uh, which became the title of a book by Eugene Peterson, pastor, theologian, uh, writer, um, called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. Here's a picture of the, uh, uh, the book cover. Um, a long obedience in the same direction um, is a phrase that kind of he, he made well known. Um, my understanding is actually the phrase originated with um, Friedrich Nietzsche, which is um, interesting, um, uh, not a Christian guy. But the phrase is talking about what it means to follow Jesus, discipleship, to be a follower of Jesus. And it's essentially saying it is a marathon, not a sprint. It's a marathon, not a sprint. It is a long process, a lifelong process, of following uh, the Lord's. Uh, if you are somebody here today who has been doing that for many years or is in your 70s or 80s and is following the Lord's, or if you're watching at home, um, can I encourage you in that? A long obedience in the same direction. And part of the reason why I, I think perhaps some of us lose heart or faith along the way is not necessarily so much a single catastrophic event, although it might be, but more often... It's the daily, regular grinds, the difficulties, the challenges that come along um, in the course of time that sort of erode and undermine and eat away at our faith and our hearts for the Lord Jesus. He's getting at that idea that it's a marathon, not a sprint. And actually, the things that get at us, the things that make it hard to continue, aren't necessarily one huge event, but actually it's the regular things, the problems and difficulties that come at us from different angles and make life um, challenging to be a Christian. And the reason I mention that, the reason I bring that up, is because I think that's a lot of what Luke is getting at here. As we come to this section where he's, uh, Paul is in Corinth, um, and the, the different events that happen here, I think he's trying to tell us something of the, the sort of normality of what it means to be a follower of Jesus for Paul and the believers there at the time. Um, that there are a number of different difficult events and things that come through. Uh, things that happen to them along the way. Um, they are sprinkled with some encouragements. And for those of you who like to know how the structure of a passage works and, and why we're looking at it, it's a bit like a pendulum as we go through. There's no sort of one single standout event. It's more that there's this pendulum swing between difficulties and then encouragements. But then something else happens, some other difficulty from somewhere else, and then an encouragement along the way. And I think it's very, very realistic. Um, let me uh, try and explain it with this uh, little table here. This is the kind of structure and outline of what happens. So having arrived, and Sarah talked about Paul arriving and getting to know Priscilla and Aquila, who are going to be great friends. He talks about them so warmly in other letters and other parts of the, of the New Testament. But immediately, as he, he makes his normal habit of going to the synagogue to talk to the Jews and to explain the Christian faith to Jewish people there. And what he's met with, every, um, pick it up at verse 4, every Sabbath he reasoned, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. Silas and Timothy come from Macedonia, and Paul gives himself exclusively to that work, testifying to Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But then, they, when they opposed Paul and became abusive... He's met with a really sort of fierce opposition. They start to abuse him, uh, really get to the point at which he, um, uh, he shakes out his cloak in protest. It was kind of a sign that, like, I'm really done. And he's really at the end of his kind of rope almost. Um, I don't know whether you sort of imagine that Paul is allowed to get cross and frustrated like that, but that's what he does. He gets to the point where he's like, I can't do this anymore. Um, and so I'm going to go elsewhere. 
So faced with that opposition, yet immediately after that, he goes, he leaves the synagogue, he goes next door to the house of Titus Justus, um, a worshipper of God, and Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his whole household believe, as do other believers. So the very synagogue leader then becomes a Christian. So he's got the great encouragement of people who believe and are interested um, in the Christian faith. It's followed up by this overwhelming sense of fear. Um, he, uh, he talks uh, about the vision that uh, Paul has, um, and immediately the Lord says to him, don't be afraid, uh, which obviously he is. And in fact, if you get a chance to look at his letter to, one Corinth- uh, to, to the Corinthians, his first letter, um, uh, he says, I came in fear and trembling, worried about how it was going to go, how vulnerable I felt. And yet there's this vision from the Lord, great positive encouragement and affirmation of what he was doing. But immediately then it's, it's followed up by this um, court case that's brought by them um, and uh, a challenge to, um, uh, to the believers there. And this, this sort of, you know, from now, where is this, where's the attack come from this time? Something else to deal with. And can you see this pendulum swing between challenges encouragements, things that come at you that you're not necessarily expecting. And Luke, I think, tries to draw attention to the the kinds of uh, emotions that Paul is going through. Frustration, fear, pressure. Uh, Frustration at uh, at just the the opposition that the Jews were were kind of uh, leveling at him. Fear uh, uh, in in the sort of position he was. Pressure as there's this attack-mounted by uh, the locals against him. There's no sort of one dominant emotion. There's no one catastrophic event. But can you see there's a, there's a kind of an ongoing grind, an ongoing challenge to be a Christian. It's a long obedience in the same direction, says Eugene Peterson. It's a, it's a marathon, not a sprint. So why is Luke telling us this? What is it that Paul and the other Christians there needed to know? What was it they needed that would keep them going, that would encourage them to continue as believers and followers of Jesus. Three quick things, I think, um, that they needed a sense of. They needed a sense, the first of them is, they needed a sense that God's presence, God was with them uh, in what was happening. And it comes in a variety of ways through the passage. I think, obviously, most obviously, there's this uh, vision that um, uh, he's given. So verse 9, one night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. I am with you. Um, imagine what a, 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 a blessing that would have been. I imagine many of us at times would love it if, the, if we heard a voice from the Lord saying, I am with you. And we need to know. We do, it's, it's important that we sense that God is with us, that we do know that he is with us, that the scriptures tell us that he is with us. Now, the vision that he has here is, you know, you don't get it very often in the scriptures. It does come from time to time. And the language used here sort of echoes uh, the Lord appearing to Moses um, or Isaiah or Jeremiah or the likes of, of those. Actually, a sort of profound experience. He had already met the risen Jesus Um, on the road to Damascus, and now the Lord says, I am with you. And you can imagine it would have been a great encouragement. But it's not the only encouragement, it's not the only way God says, I'm with you. Actually, as well as that, it's in the support God provides through fellow believers. If ever you get a chance to read through Acts and just note how often other Christians are described and how they support one another, 
It's really, it's really quite heartening. And even here, you can see so Priscilla and Aquila, they'll work together, they'll live together. He'll be really encouraged by them. Um, uh, you've got other folk who are mentioned, Titus Justus, um, Crispus, um, uh, Sosthenes is mentioned later on, and um, Sosthenes, um, uh, who is beaten up after the trial, um, and again, seems to have become the, the Jewish synagogue leader. Do you know the, the letter that Paul writes to the Corinthians? Uh, he writes from himself and Sosthenes. What a way to be converted to Christianity by being beaten up uh, by um, those who are against it. That's quite a story he has. And here is Paul. The, 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 sort of, it kind of shines through the book of Acts, the way in which fellow believers are a part and parcel of God saying, I am with you. Christianity is not meant to be, in any of the scriptures as far as I can see, a solitary exercise. We're not meant to do this on our own. We're meant to be a part of a community of believers. It's why we would, you know, it's a great thing to be sharing in this this morning. It's why we'd encourage you, if you can, to be a part of a small group, whether that's a house group or a student group or women's Bible study or serving on a team together in some way at church. Part and parcel of this is being able to link with and be a part of other believers. We're not meant to just do this on our own. It's part of God saying, I'm with you. So God's presence. Second, God's protection. So he says, I'm with you. No one is going to attack and harm you. Now, um, if you notice what happens next in verse 12, uh, he says, no one's going to attack and harm you. And then uh, Luke writes, when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews of Corinth made a united attack on them. So either he's forgotten exactly what he wrote two verses ago, um, or he means something quite uh, slightly different to the, the idea that there isn't going to be any attack at all. When he says, I'm go- I'm, no one's going to attack and harm you, he's not saying you won't face any problems, but he's saying, the Lord is saying, I will be with you through those problems. It's not saying you're not going to face trouble at all, but I'm going to be with you there um, as it happens. And the big one that comes is this um, court case. Uh, so let me read from verse, 14, uh, from verse 12, uh, 13. Um, they bring him to this place of judgment. This man they charged is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. And just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to them, if you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or crime, it would, be, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names, settle it yourselves. Now, this, you may have glossed over this. You may have glazed over at that point and thought, I don't really know what's going on there. This is really quite important for how the gospel spreads at this point. It's really important because the, um, the governing authorities are basically saying, Christianity, I'm going to regard this not as breaking the law. I'm going to regard this as some kind of debate you've got going on with the Jewish people. So it's some kind of sex from uh, Judaism, and it's for you guys to decide. Some of you think Jesus is the Messiah, some of you don't, but you're not breaking the law. Now, why is that important? It's important because it means that Christianity from that moment gets legal protection for Paul to be able to explain the gospel and to speak about Jesus to others. And it's probably partly why he gets to stay for so long in Corinth, he has legal cover and protection, and it lasts for a good number of years until a real sort of persecution comes later on. The reason why that's so important is because it's the kind of freedom that we enjoy today, the kind of freedom that allows us to meet here in this building freely this morning that isn't the case all around the world. A few weeks ago, we had an MP uh, one evening come and talk to us about freedom uh, um, of religion or belief. 
um, and a conference that happened just this week. Um, you can see on YouTube there's a, there's a three-minute little sort of a promo video of what happens, which gives you a flavor of it. Um, she came and talked to us about a conference that was happening in London, gathering people from around the world to look at this issue of freedom of religion or belief and the, the importance that there is that all religions are allowed to practice. And where religions aren't allowed to practice, often other oppressions follow. And for us here in the UK, we enjoy an extraordinary freedom to be able to say, I'm a follower of Jesus, and I'm not breaking any law. And here, um, in, in uh, what happens to Paul, they are given that kind of freedom to carry on spreading the gospel. They're given that kind of protection. So it's a really quite a key moment for them. And it's a key moment uh, just to remember that actually this is, this is a long history and not to take for granted some of the things that we enjoy as Christians here. Um, God's presence, God's protection. Uh, thirdly, God's love. They need a sense of God's love. Now, I don't know what you um, uh, make of when I say that. So he says, I am with you. No one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. Now, what was, what was going to keep Paul going, I think, was two things. When I say he needs... God's love. Uh, he needs a sense that God loves him. We all need that. We need a reminder, we need an encouragement, we need a sense that God loves you. God is with you, he loves you, he cares about you, his fatherly care, he cares about me, he loves me, um, and he says I'm with you, and he needed that reassurance. And he needed something else. He needed to be reminded, he needed a sense that God loved the people in that city as well. He needed to know God's love himself, but he also needed to know that God loved the people around him that he was among. He needed both those things. And I've, I, this is a, I came across a, a recent television show, which made me think of this. I'll explain it to you. Um, uh, I know, come for the um, Bible teaching, stay for the TV recommendations. Um, the, it's called Abbott's Elementary. It's a TV series is kind of light-hearted comedy series. It's about a school in America where the students, the pupils, have very, very little. They have very little money, very little resources. And it's very sort of light and upbeat. It's partly because the teachers in the school are, are hugely sort of positive about why they are there. They have... They have a real sense of calling that they should be there, that they're sort of you know, approved in who they are, that actually they are, if you like, loved, that they, they know what they're doing. And they're there to, minister, to, to care for, to teach these children who don't have very much. And they have a sense that the children who are there, who have very little and uh, are neglected in different ways, they have a sense, I don't think they use quite these terms, but they have a sense, essentially, that they are loved by God's that those children are made in God's image, that those children are valuable in their own right. And you get the sense from them, it's kind of the tone of the show is that they get up and what gets them out of bed is not only a sense that they are kind of called to their role, but that the children that they, they, they teach and look after are valuable. They are valued in God's sight. Um, it's kind of heartwarming um, stuff. I, I use it just as a sense in which Paul needed two things. He needed both a sense that he is loved by God and that God loves the people around him. I have many people in this city. As we, amid the, the fear, amid the frustration, amid the pressure, amid the challenges of, that sort of make it hard to keep going as a Christian, a sense that God loves the people that we are among is so key to keeping us going as Christians. The people are worth loving. 
because they are God's. They are made in his image. They are precious to him. It doesn't mean everyone will respond. Richard mentioned this last week. Some will sneer. Some will, I'm not interested. Others will have a heart that is hungering and thirsting after the Lord and longing to know him. I wanted, I, I've been trying to put words on this, um, and I did so um, at our annual meeting as well. Um, I've been trying to frame some words that try and get at, why is it we're here? What is it we're doing? Um, uh, and and these, are, well, these are the words that I've kind of found that I've tried to put on this. I've asked us, asked, I, at our annual meeting, I asked the question, why is it we're here? And I found these words helpful for me. I wonder if they're helpful for you. We're here to love Jesus, love people, and offer Christ to them. To love Jesus, to love people, and offer Christ to them. Now, I don't know where God has placed you, what family situation you're in, what workplace situation you're in, what other context you might find yourself in. But we are here as Christians, and Paul was there, and he had this strong sense that he was there to love people, to love Jesus, and to offer Christ to them. Not all would accept, but he saw that God loved the people that were around him. And he saw them through that lens. And it's my sense of God's love for me and God's love for you and the place that we're in, this part of Manchester and this city of Manchester. It's my sense of those things which will get me out of bed, which will encourage me to keep going each day. But actually, I need both of those things, God's love for me and his love for the world uh, that we're a part of. And it's what I think will help us to, um, to love our families, even when that is very difficult. Actually, that's how God views them. And to love our neighbours and love our colleagues, even again if they are difficult, whether they, whether they respond or not, whether they are interested or not, what will allow us to love them in those ways is that sense of how God views them. Let me come back as I finish to um, Eugene Peterson and his uh, long obedience in the same direction. He writes this, it's kind of interesting um, a phrase that he turns. He says, for many, the first great surprise of the Christian life is in the form of the troubles we meet. For many, the first great surprise in the Christian life is in the form of the troubles that we meet. I don't know whether that resonates with you or perhaps whether you would remember back or, or however it might be. And he talks about that, that it's a marathon, not a sprint, and actually the first hurdle of meeting troubles. And then he goes on to describe this. He talks in, in different ways about how God recognizes and knows that. He says this, he says, everything we learn about God through scripture and in Christ tells us this. It tells us that he knows what it is like to change a diaper for the 13th time in the day. Uh, a diaper is a nappy, he's American. He knows what it is like to change a diaper for the 13th time in the day. Christ knows what it is like to see a report over which we've worked so long and carefully gather dust on somebody's desk for weeks and weeks. Christ knows what it is like to find our teaching treated with scorn and indifference by children and youth. Christ knows what it is to discover that the integrity and excellence of our work has been overlooked and the shoddy duplicity of another's rewarded with a promotion. Christ knows what it is to, to, to see and face the troubles that we might as Christians Everything he says we know about Christ says he loved people in the face of fear and pressure and frustration. 
Everything we know about Christ knows that, uh, would say that he knew that. He knows what it is to, to love us in the face of fear and pressure and frustration. He knows what it is to love me in the face of, Paul, well, it's not going so well again, is it? God's presence, God's protection, God's love. We need a sense of these things. They're what will keep us going. The reality of the Christian life, it is a long obedience in the same direction. It is a marathon, not a sprint. And we need, we need to know the reality of that. We need to know the encouragements that will keep us going.